Welcome to Macintosh and Mod Haven't Seen What, the podcast where we make each other watch movies we should have already seen. I'm Diana. And I'm David. And today we are watching Quantum of Solace. James Bond descends into mystery as he tries to stop a mysterious organization from eliminating a country's most valuable resource. Uh, yes, and we are continuing our lie of a podcast because we have seen this film, but we are continuing our Bond series. And today we have a guest. Who's our guest? My pod wife for life. It is one Kate Harlow. Hello. Hello. It's me. I'm back. Yay. And you're here to talk Bond. I am. Uh, so, uh, Kate, what is your uh, experience with Bond films? Um, my experience is probably, I want to say it's pretty limited, actually. Uh my experience with Bond is more that I know referential Bond in other media, like proper Bond itself, I know less of. So, so who was your first Bond? Uh, Brosnan. Yeah, sure. Everybody's first Bond on this show. He's a, yeah, he, I mean, just for our age group, he was the he was our first Bond. That's that's pretty stereotypical. And then that or. I, you know, I grew up a lot, not having seen a lot of Bond, but I saw all of the Austin Powers films. <laughs> so, so going back and watching the original films and being like, oh, that's what they were making fun of. That's what they were making fun of is right. a weird, a weird backwards thing. Yeah. So what, are, what are your feelings about Daniel Craig as a James Bond? Um, he's very pretty. That's, that's that's true. He has the moniker of James Blonde. He's he's very pretty. He's I appreciate he has the um I feel like he he brought the appropriately like solemn tone that I felt like Bond needed to have when he when he came to the role because at that point in time Bond had become so outlandish and silly and almost a caricature mm-hmm. uh, that I felt like it needed to be brought real back in and I felt like he did a really good job with that but also at the same time I was desperately desperately disappointed that they didn't make the jump to letting Bond be you know uh, a man of color or a woman or something so for for a cis a cis male he's good (laughs) for a cis white male dude he was a good choice if there's anything we've learned about this franchise, it's that they're going to take baby steps to progress there. <laughs> Woo. We got a Lady M, and that took a lot. That yes. took a lot. Yes. All right. Well, what what are our general thoughts about Quantum of Solace? Hoobly. Oh, no. Oh, no. <laughs> I had to try several times to get through this. It was not good. Oh. <gasps> Wow. Okay. Well, that a lot of people feel that way. A lot of people did not like this film. I just found it exceedingly dull. Like the action sequences were great. Uh huh. I will give it to that. I appreciate good fight coordination, but like, I, uh, I, I, I totally get that. I absolutely 100% understand that feeling because I remember when I first watched it, I was kind of like, huh. Okay. I also feel like, Bond by itself, I think you should be able to come into any one standalone and watch it and understand it without needing a ton of backstory. Yes. And I I could not. Correct. 
And that's not okay. Yeah. This, <laughs> this is one that is a direct sequel. It's in fact the only time they've ever done that. Yeah. A direct sequel to the prior film. That was a misstep in this film for yeah. sure. Yeah. And, and well, watching it back to back, having watched Casino Royale so recently, mm-hmm. if you do that as a double feature, this movie's pretty good. Yeah. But also something that, that kept rubbing me wrong with this movie was that stylistically it did not feel like a Bond film. Mm-hmm. It felt like an action film that happened to have James Bond in it. Like I felt weirdly detached the entire time watching the movie. You know, mm-hmm. that it does feel like an action film where they put the Bond skin over it. Mm-hmm. Let's, let's throw in the car. Let's throw in the 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 Bond. Let's yeah. Let's, let's, <laughs> mm-hmm. let's throw in M. Let's do it that way. That makes sense. Yeah. And like, there's some very specific reasons I think why that happened, but just on the general impression of it, mm-hmm. that was the issue between the writing and the directing of the movie. Mm-hmm. There's something about this that does not fit even the tone from the last movie they made. Oh, sure. And that's not good. <laughs> that's where this has a problem. Well, I mean, I fucking love Casino Royale. I watched that movie several times before we actually recorded our episode for that one because I just fucking love that movie. This one, I do still really like it. One, because it's really short. It moves really fast. This Um, is the shortest Bond film of all, period. Which is good. And I do like that that one of the characteristics that they gave Bond in this film is that he's just sad. Mm-hmm. Like he's pissed and he's vengeful, and we've certainly seen that. But he's also really sad. His fucking girlfriend betrayed him, and he loved her. Like mm-hmm. he's fucking sad. We see him drunk. That's mm-hmm. sad. May I fix your drink, sir? What are you drinking? I don't know. What am I drinking? Three measures of Gordon's gin, one of vodka, half a measure of Kinalale, which is not vermouth. Shaken well until it is ice cold, then served with a large, thin slice of lemon peel. Six of them. That's impressive. That good you should have one. No, it'll just keep me awake. And I kind of like that. So, while it's certainly flawed, I say this a lot about Mond, I still really (laughs) like this. I still really like it. That's just like the tagline for all of Bond as a franchise. It's flawed, but we like it. We're, it, we're still going to give it all of our money. <laughs> it's like it's like the, the diner that you go to at 3 a.m. Like, it's flawed, but we're still going to go. <laughs> it's Denny's or IHOP, whichever, or the Waffle House, whichever one's closest. You're going. <sighs> I mean, you don't care what its health rating is. You're going. well the budget for this movie was 200 million dollars possibly 225 million making it at the time the most expensive bond movie ever made it was also filmed in more locations than any other bond film in the franchise they filmed in the uk panama chile italy mexico and austria they also intended to film in machu picchu in peru but the weather interrupted their plans to film there in the ruins. Oh, they didn't need any more locations. And it didn't feel like they had that many. They've done this so many times. We go to too many places. 
one of the best things about Casino Royale was we went to like three places and that was it. We had a couple of quick runs in in different locations. Yeah. For the most part, we stayed in a couple of spots and that's what we did. And that's what all the best ones do. Or we mm-hmm. were just traveling. We just saw the traveling too. Yeah. Um, I think it, it was die another day. But we, it was like every five minutes we were in a different location. It was like, this is fucking stupid. Timothy Dalton's movies. Yeah. I mean, Living Daylights did that where they jumped to like, they, they went to like five too many locations. Mm-hmm. And after a while we were like, why did we go here? Yeah. If it, it just doesn't make sense for your plot, we don't need to. And like this one, I know you said that many filming locations. But I don't, I didn't feel that many locations, but because I, I think because we have the side story with Felix Leiter and he's in a different location. So that makes sense, but it didn't feel like we were in that many places. Well, to be fair, Panama, Chile and Mexico, I believe all sub in for the same, the place. same place. Yeah. yeah. So because like, they're using different locations sure. to sub in for that same area that she is from. Okay. And that's probably what they were going to do. If they were going to do Machu Picchu too, they were probably going to make that another, they were going to use those ruins as something else. But it's like, at a certain point... It's like, come on. The budget actually started mushrooming out of control when the action scenes took longer than thought, particularly the freaking car commercial that comes at the beginning of this movie. Oh, (laughs) yeah. This happens every single time I've watched this movie, which I think I've only watched it four or five times. I start the movie, and I'm like, wait, did I miss something? Because you are instantly in a 10-minute car commercial. Yeah, uh-huh. <laughs> it's a good car commercial. I, I mean, it is. It's a great car commercial. Well, to be fair, I think car commercials took cues from this movie. Mm-hmm. I'm okay with that because it's a good one. Uh huh. It is. It's uh-huh. good. Well, I like that it's not one of those sappy, sentimental car commercials no. where it's like you know the dog gets out of the car and then no. like it's a puppy and then it's an old dog. Like, and they wreck the car. Like I. Love it when they destroy the car, when they're not yeah. being precious about the fancy car. <laughs> yes. Like, fucking destroy the car. Mm-hmm. I love that. That makes me happy. <laughs> this should make you happy then, because multiple cars were accidentally destroyed before ever getting filmed. Yes. Oh, no. <laughs> including one of the Aston Martin DBSs being run into an Italian lake. The media titled that Dry Another Day. <laughs> That's amazing. Uh, somebody retired on that. <laughs> Someone has that framed in their living room, and they earned that. Yeah. They earned that. The car itself, the DBS, is valued at around 120,000 mm-hmm. pounds. But a fan paid 200,000 pounds for that wrecked car, making it even more absurd because it had never actually been on film. Oh, that's stupid. <laughs> But it's, it's still memorable. It's the car that was going to be on film, but then got run into a lake. It's a did, wrecked Aston Martin DBS. Did Daniel James Craig Bond might have it? driven it. Did, no. No. <laughs> Unless Daniel Craig took a shit in it. No, thank you. <laughs> Some fish might have. No. <laughs> no, thank you. People have too much money. That's what I've decided. <laughs> it's true. Opening weekend in the U.S., this movie made just over 67500000 Its U.S. gross was just over $168 million, and worldwide it made $589,580,000. A little bit less than Casino Royale, but still a sizable chunk of money. It did just fine. It did. 
perfectly fine. And now we go to our writers. Our writers are exactly the same as the last film. We have Neil Purvis and Robert Wade, our Bond duo. They are the guys who pretty much write all our plots for the new Bond movies. And Paul Haggis returns from writing on Casino Royale. Paul Haggis, of course, of Crash and Million Dollar Baby fame. Mm-hmm. He writes some good. Sh- I mean, he does write some good shit. I know he's a problematic human now, but he writes some good shit. What do we think of the writing? It needed a pun. It needed another punch up. It needed another pass by somebody to be like, mm, it, this could be a directing thing too. But it it needed a few more jokes. This one didn't have as much punchy, punchy silliness. Well, and particularly because Bond being depressed the entire film, like. I can see backing off a little bit on the humor because you it's very, very careful balance, but sure. not having enough of it makes it that much heavier. So like you need to pepper in a little bit more in the right places to make that that sadness weigh the right amount. True. Or um, the jokes could have just been darker jokes. Yeah. Or you could have had the people around him be the one who are being a little bit more quippy. Yeah. You could have had Mathis being funnier. You could have had our 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 villain be funnier. You could have had Felix be funnier. Yeah. You could have had Felix more in this freaking uh, movie. Anytime we could have more Felix, because I fucking love Jeffrey Wright. I want him <laughs> in I want his own series. I fucking love him. He is criminally underused in this movie. Because his <laughs> yeah. character could have been a linchpin throughout. Even just being in the van, talking to James, being like, I fucking hate this guy I'm working with. Guys, it's tweeting about his day job. It could have been a a total diehard situation. It would have been amazing. Where Leiter is stuck behind a desk and is just so pissed at what he's being asked to do. (laughs) And instead, we just get one tense scene where he warns James, hey, they are coming after you right now. And that's it. That's all we get of him. Well, we get him rolling his eyes and lying to his partner, but that's about it. Yeah, it again, because I know the trivia, there's some reasons why this happened. Okay. You've gotten it exactly right. They yeah. are missing whole chunks of stuff that needs to be in the story to make it flesh out better. Yeah. This is one of the few times where I'll say, I kind of wish it was a little longer. I kind of wish we had a little more to hold on to. We we could have used 30 more minutes of story of some filler stuff. Connective Mm -hmm. tissue. This film does not contain James Bond's two signature lines. At no point in this film does he say Bond, James Bond, or vodka martini shaken, not stirred. He never says that in this movie. And I think that's actually a great choice. Yeah. In terms of he is depressed. He's not feeling James Bond. No. And in the other film, they use such restraint. Uh, in, in Casino Royale, they ask him about the martini and he says, do I look like I fucking care? Mm-hmm. And then he doesn't say J- Bond, James Bond until the very end of the film. Exactly. So I, I, I like that they didn't do that here. And like, that's beautiful, but it's also an opportunity to take and twist those still. Like leaving them out entirely is one thing, but it's still an opportunity to play. There's an opportunity there. This one they could have had, and this would have been great with Felix. They could have played with the like, like Bond. And it's like, no, I'm not James Bond because he's not feeling like James Bond. Right. They, they could have flipped it in that way. Um, but 
No, they chose not to. But one of the biggest problems for this is we are dealing with the writer strike. Oh, yeah. What? This is 06? This is 08. Paul Haggis finished his final draft for this film two hours prior to the writer's strike. He did not get a chance to do a final run on this movie. Okay. That explains that explains some go. things. Okay. All right. I, Paul, it's okay. I forget. And you. as we get into it, we'll find out that there were some other cooks in the kitchen that may have gotten this story convoluted. Of course there were. Too many cooks. Too many cooks. Yeah. Too many cooks on the dance floor. Too many cooks. <laughs> but Haggis has some really interesting descriptions. He describes Bond in this movie as a very, as quote, a very human and flawed assassin, a man who has to navigate a morally complex and often cynical world while attempting to hold on to his deep beliefs of what is right and what is wrong. And Daniel Craig further went on to say that Bond in this movie is an quote, an unfinished article with a sense of revenge who is still headstrong and doesn't always make the right decisions. That's fair. He's pissed and he wants revenge. That's what's driving him. Mm-hmm. I will give them this. They've tried to do the revenge movie a handful of times. Sure. This is the closest they've got to getting it right. I mean, it's not perfect. No. But I, I will say this. He does not take on the Bond girl's revenge for himself as much. He lets her have that. And I did, it was very empowering for her. And I did love that. Yeah. I thought that was really great. And while he does save her, it's in still in a very empowering way. Like it's not, um, uh, I didn't, I didn't feel like it was, it undercut what she was able to accomplish. Yeah. It's not out of some white knight romantic savior stuff. Sure, it's out sure. of a common bond of revenge. Yeah. There you go. There you go. So they put her on equal footing, which, you know, with Vesper in the in the previous movie, it was all about vulnerability. In this one, it's about an equal footing with a woman, which I think are both really strong choices. Especially yeah. for a, a character who is known as being so misogynistic. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and goes into, like, really dark territory with it in this set of films. Mm -hmm. Yeah, they got really close to that. It was bad, and you knew it was getting close. We didn't get there, but it was getting close. I know. Every time they've made those decisions in this set of movies, the one thing I have to give them credit for is it's not done gratuitously. It's done in service of this dark character that they've Mm -hmm. built. Sure. And that's the smart thing about it. Mm -hmm. It's not just, we have a pretty woman, and he needs to hit on her. Yeah. Because every other time, that's what they fucking did. The early draft of the script had Bond discovering that Vesper had had a child from a previous relationship that had been kidnapped by Quantum. Okay. So this would be our, we have an evil, quote, Bond out there. Okay. Haggis' script had a scene set at a UN-style conference and Bond following the conference by switching frequencies. That scene wound up moving to the opera because our director, Mark Forster, wanted it to be more visually interesting. That scene is fucking gorgeous. <laughs> and I'm sorry, I love the conceit that a bunch of uh, villains are going to the opera to conduct their meeting. That Not is just some, villains, but is, the most powerful, richest villains. That is some highbrow Fraser shit. <laughs> yeah, that's, I mean, they're not just going to go to like any piddly shit. Like it's going to no. be... That's amazing. I fucking love it. <laughs> yeah. I Just wait lo- till we talk about how they did that. 
Oh, I'm I'm ecstatic. <laughs> I'm sure uh, I've the read the nerd in you will be quite excited. Yes, I know I've read it in the in my previous years, but I've forgotten all of it. So I'm excited <laughs> to hear it again today. The story for this movie is actually a take on fairly fresh history at the time. Uh, it's based on the the water wars that happened in Bolivia in about 2000. Water rights in Bolivia were sold to a corporation and they increased the price beyond the ability of the citizens of Bolivia to pay for water. So the people rightfully protested and the government was forced to reverse that decision. They had to renationalize the water system. There's a reason why peasants revolt. They mixed this in with the U.S. support for the coup in Venezuela in about 2003 against Hugo Chavez and the murkiness of whether or not we gave direct support or indirect support or really just didn't care that a bunch of people were going to try and overthrow a communist dictator. But an interesting note, the movie, the price hike in this movie was actually less than the price hike that happened in Bolivia. So real life was more evil than the movie. Wow. (laughs) You know what? I fully believe that. Yeah. Yeah. It doesn't really surprise me very much. (sighs) I believe it. That's another thing that these movies have done. They, They go after current events. And the Brosnan ones did this too. They went after current events in kind of a savvy way. Yeah. Not in a, you know, blunt force. There's a deadly maniacal man with a laser in space trying to kill us all. It's, hey, people are greedy for oil. And we're going to find a plot around that. (laughs) So it's a smart move on their end. Well, and the other thing I really liked, like watching this one, um, and we uh, we had the same thing watching um, Tomorrow Never Dies, was that this is so, it feels so futuristic, this villain. He's taking over water futures, knowing it's going to be this commodity. Mm -hmm. And in Tomorrow Never Dies, it was, media being the superpower mm-hmm. and like oh fuck this we're, we're living through this this mm-hmm. is insane and like yeah. oh shit it predicted the future we're here now this is horrible <laughs> we didn't want things to get real in our bond movies fuck nah. fuck this is amazing <laughs> this is great it's fabulous stop predicting the future bond if bond 25 doesn't predict harmony and peace i'm gonna be real mad <laughs> called no time to die like no it's no time to die yeah everybody's gonna live forever and be happy it's gonna be great we've we've got the cure for peace and harmony and um prosperity so it is no time to die and and remy malik is gonna lead the world into harmony and happiness and just be real pretty yeah that's that's the plot of the movie yeah Let's let's go with that. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Okay. <laughs> the title, which has been a point of controversy for so many times. I remember this movie coming out and everybody going, "What the fuck is a quantum? And what does it mean for a, have a quantum of solace?" <laughs> so number 1, this is the title of a Fleming story. Yes. It was one of the very few left to be able to use. Uh-huh. They only selected the title a few days before the announcement, and it had been considered unusable by the franchise forever. They were like, how in the hell do you name a blockbuster movie Quantum of Solace? You just fucking do it. You just do it. And then there I mean, it is. 
I feel like there are stupider things named out there. Like, there are, some, there other, are. There are some other ones that haven't been used yet that are going to be harder. Daniel Craig himself was unsure about the choice of the title, but eventually he actually came around to really like it. He stated that Bond is looking for his quantum of solace. That's what he wants. Ian Fleming says that if you don't have a quantum of solace in your relationship, you might as well give up. Bond doesn't have that because his girlfriend has been killed, and therefore he's looking for revenge to make himself happy with the world again. So the the idea is he is looking for some iota of respite after dealing with this horrible tragedy. And the further he goes down this hole, the worse it gets. He can't find rest in his revenge. Well, he needs well, he needs solace. Mm-hmm. Like I think that's the thing that you have to cling to in all of this. The quantum is a little, meh. Yeah, I I, I hate to be that person, but I feel <laughs> duty bound to be that person. I can word salad my way into making sense out of any pair of words myself. <laughs> that's 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 why we love you. <laughs> <laughs> it's a gift. Um. <laughs> <laughs> if, if you give me some nonsensical sentence, I can tell you how to make sense of it. It's it won't necessarily actually be, you know, good, but I can do it. Oh, oh good. No, hold on. <laughs> I'm I'm looking up like the actual definition of quantum. Oh nice. <laughs> An analogous discrete amount of any other physical quantity such as momentum or electrical charge. A required or allowed amount, especially an amount of money legally payable in damages. So if you take that for solace, a quantum of solace. The like amount required, required to make things whole. To make things so- whole. That's fucking deep as hell for what yeah. he's fucking going through. That is a deep as hell title for a Bond film. This title yeah. slaps. This t- <laughs> <laughs> it makes me want to read the Fleming story because I feel like we would get I the under. I won't that. go that far. Diane is not reading a book for this. <laughs> <laughs> is it a picture book? If the other tie-in of with Daniel Craig in his speedo, yes. Kate will read a picture book for this. <laughs> I will do an interpretive dance for it. Oh boy. <laughs> I did an interpretive dance about furnishing our office the other day. You did, and it was wonderful. (laughs) Quantum was also used to name the new organization that they were going to fight because they still didn't have the rights to Spectre at this point. So, like, this guy held on to it forever, and they could not get the rights to Spectre. So they were like, okay, we'll just come up with a new one. Quantum's not a bad one. And then... Right after making this, they finally succeeded in getting the rights back to Spectre. So they switched course entirely (laughs) and went back to the thing that made them famous in the first place. I'm okay with all this. So there are now only four remaining Fleming titles that could be used. They are The Property of a Lady, The Hildebrand Rarity, Risico, and 007 in New York. Which is a buddy comedy that I want to see. I mean, okay, that has to be a lighter buddy comedy. Yeah. Right? That's fucking a lighter story. The Hildebrand fiasco, whatever the fuck that is. The Hildebrand rarity. Rarity. 
That's the My Little Pony crossover. Sure. Yeah. Sure. Uh, shout the out. animated Bond. Shout out to all of the episodes of Rarity My Little Pony that Kate's been on mm-hmm. <laughs> and will be on in the future. Uh, the one I want to know is the property of a lady. Property of a lady. That's, that's, the, that's that, when they finally switch over and finally, finally have a lady bond. <laughs> so that's not going to happen until 2080. <laughs> no, see, that's one that I always thought would have been great um, to be about M. Yeah, actually, but, that's true. But now that Lady M is dead, um, spoiler alerts. Uh, for Skyfall, for Skyfall. <laughs> if you don't know that by now, fuck off. Uh, yeah, I thought I always thought that would have been cool, um, and they could still do that. Like the ghost of like stuff that they dealt with um, with M could come back. But I would, lo- I would, I would love that. Would be a great one to introduce a female Bond. That'd be great. Yeah, I just don't know. I just yeah. oh, no. <gasps> Our director is Mark Forster. Before this, he did Monster's Ball, Finding Neverland, Stranger Than Fiction, and The Kite Runner. After this movie, he made Machine Gun Preacher, World War Z, All I See Is You, and Christopher Robin. Oh, man. Like, I I liked all the stuff. Well, I liked a lot of the stuff beforehand and not a lot of the stuff after. Yeah, I know. He's a good storyteller. Because I love Stranger Than Fiction. I love Stranger Than Fiction. That that movie is Finding Neverland. A big thing. Neverland is a great movie. It's a great movie, but those aren't films that translate to Bond movies very well. Now, and this no. one is is a different tone for a Bond film, but no. But we also discussed that that's kind of part of the not greatness is that it doesn't really feel like a Bond as much. I will give him credit. The action sequences he executed very well. Yeah. I would have expected him to have struggled with those. He does, but again, it always feels just a little detached. It always feels like a, this is a set piece. We need to run through these beats to get the thing to look right. Okay. And it doesn't always feel like it's with James in that moment. Fair. But you know what? He hits out of the fucking park. What? The the opera scenes. (laughs) Those opera scenes are the shit and you know it. You know they're awesome. He has a very specific vision in mind. It's very clear that he does. True. The thing about that is that it doesn't necessarily jibe with what Bond has done in the past. I'm so fine. like I'm fine with doing if, something new, but he he did not have the resume that was appropriate for doing this movie. Well, and especially with this being a direct sequel with the story flushing out that way, if you had Martin Campbell doing this movie, it would have worked perfectly. Yeah, it would have been fine. If we had the guy who did GoldenEye and the guy who did Casino Royale come in and directly tie through this movie and then bring in Sam Mendes after that for what he's going to go out there and do in the next few films, <laughs> like that's what should have tied this together. They needed a little bit of continuity after they made the decision to flesh this as a direct sequel. Because otherwise, it just feels off. Barbara Broccoli's not allowed to hire directors anymore. She's a bad picker. (laughs) (laughs) The Broccoli family has never picked good directors for these movies. They pick like one randomly. One of the biggest reasons he got this job was Daniel Craig was a huge fan of his work and recommended him for the job. 
Forster was apparently surprised by being approached because he was not really a fan of the franchise and wouldn't have accepted the job if it hadn't been for the success of Casino Royale and the tone shift. (laughs) 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 Yeah. That's it. That's all. That's all I got. (sighs) It's a big fucking red flag. If you aren't all in on this franchise, it's not going to go well. It's it's something as big as this. It's just a, it's exactly that. If you're not all in, like you can't half-ass it. It's not even something like a, yeah, I just decided to super get into it. It's like, no, man, you gotta, <laughs> you have to be a lifelong fan. I'm sorry. I'm sorry. And and I'll give him credit. It's not that he half-asses it. It's just that he doesn't get it. Mm-mm. Yeah. This is not something that he quite understands. And therefore he's off the mark in how he's viewing it and how he's trying to envision it. Yeah, it's just like, it's not a good paint-by-numbers thing. Like, you can't just... Another thing that'll throw you a bit off about this movie is that there are over 900 visual effects in the film. That's one of the very different things about this movie. It doesn't have a lot of practical effects. It's very visual effects heavy. So one of the biggest sequences that we could say that for is when they're doing the foot chase and they crash through the ceiling of that church. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Suddenly... It's very like it was one of those things where I'm like, this is very good CGI for 2008. Yeah. <laughs> got it now. I go, oh no, <laughs> you clearly did a weird ass transition with this. Instead of using the talent that you have at the, at Pinewood and the 007 Studios to figure out how to make that practical mm-hmm. or how to find a way around your vision there. You went for the visual effect. Mm -hmm. And it works in scenes like the opera sequence. There's a lot of them that are just like, why did you do that? Why did we need to see all of that instead of just doing, you know, what we could bare minimum get in front of a camera that looks good? Mm -hmm. Apparently, the film was never intended to be a direct sequel. But because of the bare bones script that they got after the writer's strike, Craig and Forster wound up doing most of the rewrites on this film. Oh, uh-huh. okay. This is where I go too many cooks in the kitchen. Haggis had an outline. Haggis had a real strong story idea. Mm-hmm. These two fleshed it out. Mm-hmm. And they are not writers. <laughs> mm-hmm. Daniel Craig and Mark Forster are not writers. I would grant a little leeway to Daniel Craig because he has had such a strong vision Mm-hmm. of Bond. Yeah, he's intimately yeah. tied with the producers in a really, in a solid way that, you know, as strong a Bond as all of these dudes have had with the Broccoli's at some point mm-hmm. in the family, he's probably got the most direct line of communication with them on that character. Oh, yeah. Mm-hmm. It, oh, when he was first asked to do it, he was just like, fuck off. He didn't have a script and he said, I don't want to do this because... The franchise has gone in this weird direction. The yes. second he saw the script, he went, oh, fuck, yes, I'll do oh. this in a minute. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, he's had a lot more pull when he's a producer. I, I'm pretty sure he's a producer and he's actually been a part of like writing and making sure it is what it needs to be. So, I, yeah, but this Forrester guy, nope, 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 nope. They were rewriting it while they were filming. Yeah, that's a problem. Like it's not like they they were able to drop in for like a solid two week vacation out in the middle of nowhere and just come up with the full story idea. 
they were trying to figure it out on the fly because they had to get this movie made. That's never good. That's, and that's the pro- that's the problem more than anything else because if they didn't have the writer's strike, those two getting involved could still have been tailored by Paul Haggis and Purvis and Wade. They mm-hmm. two could have been like, oh, that's great. Let me let me tailor that up a little bit. Yeah. Even the best of these movies have always been written by committee mm-hmm. because they have always had the strong input from the lead, the strong input from the producers, and the strong input from the production design crews. Yeah. Mm-hmm. They have always been intimately involved in, these are the things we want to do. Well, you can't do this stunt. So mm-hmm. think again. Right. <laughs> we can't do that. <laughs> and then Forster hired another writer because they needed an actual writer to help them actually get stuff on a page. They hired Joshua Zedimer, who wrote 2014's RoboCop remake and Patriot's Day. Oh, geez. <laughs> and that is the person that they got to ghostwrite their contributions, basically. Oh, oh man. Oh, geez. Oh, man. So the direct sequel line was a last minute addition to this script as they started fleshing it out. And it's not the worst idea in the world. No, it's not. It's not. We're trying to say, well, we have, we have a bare bones idea. How are we going to make it tie together? I know. Let's just make it happen right after the last one. And, and to be fair, since they've never done it before, I'm okay with that. Like, I don't hate it. I don't love it. It's very much a turtle that got knocked on its back. Yes. Oh, yeah. That's, that's <laughs> exactly what it is. It's, it's trying very, very hard to write itself, and it's, it's just trying real, real hard. So hard. They didn't have the revenge elements until even later in the process to justify the use of the title. <laughs> okay. <laughs> Whatever. Yeah, <laughs> the fucking slaps. I don't care. It's, <laughs> I'm into it. Now that I know what quantum me actually officially means, I'm into it. You know, it's so funny. All of these ideas on their own are good. Yeah. On their own. When you try to string them together, it doesn't quite work. No, no, you can string them together. You just need it not to be writer strike time to flesh them out properly. You you needed your Oscar winning screenwriter to be there to actually write the shit that you're coming yeah. up with. Yeah, and not <laughs> in five minutes. Yeah. Yeah. Uh-huh. Yeah. To his credit, though, Mark Forster really, really wanted Judy Dench to be a stronger character in the films because he felt M had been very underused. Fact. True. He wanted her to interact with Bond more specifically because, quote, she is the only woman Bond doesn't view in a sexual context. And that was something that super interested him as a director. Also fact. Yeah, he made a big effort to get M more involved in the story. And she she's great. I do love those elements of the story where everyone else is like, no, Bond's gone. He's a loose cannon now. Clearly he's done. And she's like, he's my agent and I trust him. We're going, we're, we're going after him. I love that yeah. because, mm-hmm. because we have seen her yell at him. We have seen her be like, you're, you're out of commission. You're in trouble. You're awful. And it's just like, I trust him. Let's go. Mm-hmm. I love it. It makes me happy. And Mark Forster, being a Swiss man himself, wanted to film in the Alps as they did with On Her Majesty's Secret Service. But because of cost reasons, had to write that out. And the fact that the finale would have been too similar to Casino Royale. 
Uh-huh. So instead, we went to a new setting, the desert, which we haven't really done with Bond before. That's just... <laughs> and Porter based each action sequence on one of the four classical elements, earth, water, air, and fire. Okay, fuck that. <laughs> but also, like, putting it in the desert instead of the Alps just feels so petulant. Like, fine, I can't do that. Okay. I can't have the snow. Fine, I'll go to the opposite of snow. Exactly. Hmm. Like, it just feels like such a, like, hmm, oh, uh, like... The reason the desert's a shitty choice is because we're clearly in Latin America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it should, be, it should be forested. It should be, like, very, very rich and vibrant. We've been there before. <laughs> like, it's not hard. I mean, I think, it, I, I think it does help drive home the whole point of the water scarcity a little bit better. Yeah, that's fair. All right. Who could have been better? A lot of people. Paul Haggis was approached to direct this film. Interesting. Because he has directed some of his own scripts. Okay. I wonder how that would have panned out with the strike, though. Like, if he had taken that job, would he have still been able to do it? I don't know. Like, that's what I find fascinating. As a director, he probably could have had input. Somebody else might have had to actually, like, write it, write it, who was not in the guild but he could have at least been looking at the script, making comments, getting things shaped up. I, I don't know. That's a weird iffy place. And he he turned it down anyway. He didn't want to take it on. But mm-hmm. also, he might have turned it down to not cross the picket line. Right. I just I don't that. know. The other choice was the director of Notting Hill, Roger Mitchell. Huh. What? I don't know. I don't know. It was a choice. That was a new pitch. <laughs> It's a weird choice, but you know, maybe he had an idea. I don't know. Oh, <laughs> it might have made more sense conceptually than Finding Neverland, dude. Yeah, no. <laughs> I mean, Notting Hill is a treasure. The I, only I, thing I can think is that he's British. That's probably it. <laughs> and they weren't getting an American dude or a Swiss dude, so. I have to see what else this dude has directed because that makes <laughs> me to a degree that I find almost offensive. <laughs> I looked through his filmography and I was like, there's nothing here except that, apparently. Roger Mitchell, all filmography, director. No, no. Morning Glory, romantic comedy, crap. With my cousin Rachel. Crap, crap. Venus with it's Peter crap. It's crap. There's nothing. literally nothing that says I can direct a Bond film fuck off Broccoli's (laughs) damn it (sighs) okay next please Uh, I think we got the best director we were gonna get which is sad that's pathetic it's pathetic pathetic we we can we can blame Daniel Craig he's the one who who thought of this dude what a blonde move (laughs) rude (laughs) i'll allow it all right we now get to our cast and we start with the very pretty blonde man himself daniel craig playing james bond what do we think of daniel craig in this movie i want to do him (laughs) i mean him is a pretty sad man (laughs) he's a pretty sad man he's very sad 
Kim is pretty sad. Kim is broken. It's my type. Him broken. I would like to fix him, please. (laughs) (sighs) I am I am relationship colorblind when it comes to James Bond. All I see are flags. (laughs) I would like to set him up with a therapist, please. (laughs) Oh boy, does he ever need one in this movie? Mm -hmm. He's not bad, and he's he's better than what the movie gives him. Sure. Because he Mm -hmm. at least is invested. Regardless of how convoluted this movie gets, Uh which is a credit to him because that doesn't always happen. We've had lots of Bonds just completely say, fuck it, I'm not going to bother trying. Mm -hmm. But he at least keeps true to the character. He's acting circles around his, his script. Yeah, he really is. Which I think is just a testament to how great Daniel Craig is. When it's time for him to be vulnerable, he's very vulnerable. When it's time for him to be ruthless, he's ruthless. He's just, he's playing all the notes very, very well. What we didn't get, and this is a fault of the script, is him being a dick. Because in Casino Royale, he is a grade A jerk in a fun way. Mm-hmm. And it, yeah. makes him, it, it makes him laughable because he's just smarmy. And we don't have any of that in this movie. But... I think that's okay here because he's on a revenge quest and he doesn't he does not give a shit to be playful here. He Yeah. He's he's on a I'm if you are in my way I'm going to murder you mode. Yeah, which he does. <laughs> it's frustrating because that's what endears us to him in the first movie. True. It but you know, but he does have that moment with like the with the woman at the airport where he's just like you're about to get a call. <laughs> Will you tell them I went here? And she's just like, sure. And that's where we get a hint of that, where he like he's still in there. Mm-hmm. He's he's having a real shitty time. Yeah. Which is good, which is fun. I, I like that. Yeah, it, it makes sense that we're missing some of that like playful smarminess. Sure. Because he's doubling down on like the very, very sad sad. The sad sads. If he was to come up out of the sad sads and throw around that kind of like haha like i'm your your high school jock dick character it would take some of the sincerity away from the sad vengeful stuff and it would make it all seem disingenuous he's he's very grounded yeah and if if we had some of that it wouldn't feel as grounded it would feel like oh well this is a bond film and we have to have this many jokes we haven't filled our quota for this one yet Yeah. yeah He was injured at least three different times during the making of this movie. The biggest was a face injury that he needed four stitches for. Not the face! Face! Yeah, the face. I know. No! Uh, That's the moneymaker! He also required six screws in his shoulder in an operation and had to have his arm in a sling for a while. Jiminy Christmas. And his hand got injured when he sliced a fingertip up. He laughed all of these off, apparently. It never delayed filming. And he joked that his finger would allow him to have a criminal career. (laughs) He's precious. He is. Despite all of this, he didn't have it the worst on this set. We had one stuntman get injured crashing a car in the chase sequence. Okay, I have one question. You know what my question Mm -hmm. is? Did anyone lose a foot? Nobody lost a foot from a mini helicopter. Did anyone (laughs) lose a foot at all, period? No, no, no. Okay, that's important. An outdoor set at Pinewood got damaged by fire. Good God, stay away from fire. <laughs> and Pinewood, clearly. The 007 stage has burned down twice. <laughs> twice. 
No. And finally, in Austria, a technician was stabbed by his wife while working. I'm sorry. What? That sounds like not like a specific like film issue so much as a domestic issue. Yeah. No. That's just the thing that happened at work one day. Mm-hmm. Like a bird ran into the, the building today. Somebody got stabbed by their spouse. But it's just like... Uh, ex- excuse me, attention. We are we are out of bologna sandwiches and craft services, and Jerry got stabbed. <laughs> by their spouse. Like, like, that's what you put on the incident report of the things that happened today. What the fuck? What the I fuck? I don't know, Pinewood? man. That was that is the only detail I have. We are never visiting Pinewood because there will be a fire. I know. That's what will happen. Nope, can't go to Pinewood. We can go to the tank. We can go to the Titanic tank. It hasn't caught on fire yet. No, I'll drown. I'm deter- I'll drown. He considered Casino Royale a walk in the park compared to the intense training he had to do for this film. He trained in boxing, running, speedboating, and stunt driving. That's right. He did some of the driving in that opening sequence. That's cool. Which, to be fair, he had to. They were doing so many close-ups. Yeah. The running and the boxing, though, were to help spare him his injuries from the previous film. Oh, okay. He needed to be in a little bit better shape for trying to do some of the stuff they were asking him to do. He was in perfect shape in the last film. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> I know. Well, he actually trimmed down in this movie. He was a lot bulkier in Casino Royale. For this film, they've made him a little trimmer, a little more gaunt, which I think plays really well for the character, but also... Because he has the sads. It's an endurance thing, though, right? Like, you have to do so many of those stunts. It's about him, like, being able to keep going. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Like a little Energizer Bondi. Yeah. (laughs) Very cute. I'm so good. He had to change hotels multiple times in Panama because the paparazzi discovered his whereabouts, and they caused many, many problems on set because of the new attention. Yeah. He was now officially a superstar. Uh Uh-huh. And he, to his credit, as we've discussed all the issues here, he did not like how this went. He said he would never do another movie, period, without having a script nailed down beforehand. Fair. That's, I think that's something most people should say. I think he, I think he finally realized it was like, I'm never doing this again. He learned his lesson. And it was just like, hey, if we do this again, if there's a strike, let's just wait. <laughs> let's just wait <laughs> it out, okay? Yep. Uh-huh. And he personally commissioned Tom Ford to design him exclusive clothing for this <gasps> film. Ooh. He has 11 costume changes in this film with 420 blaze it pieces of clothing. Nice. There are nine versions of each suit, three normal, three battered with blood and debris, and three battered with blood and debris and waterlogged. Okay. For wow. each of the suits that he has in this movie, so they could swap them out for yeah. all the different action he's in. That's pretty normal. <laughs> like I remember like reading about like how they would like this is the version of the suit for when he's on the bike, so that like his like sleeves are like an inch and a half longer, so it still looks the same on him, but his arms are in this position or in this pos- like it's so crazy. But I was like, oh, that makes total sense. Like, yeah, I, lo- I love I love hearing about that. Costuming is crazy. It's like so so intricate, and I love it. Ugh, yeah. Well, and then with these movies, it is 
it is a hybrid of costume and fashion design. Oh, sure. Yeah. Because they have these really smart, thoughtful, practical costumers. Sure. And then they team up with super high fashion designers. Yeah, they, yes. they source a lot of things and then they have them tailored. You know, especially now with the money they have in the franchise, they mm-hmm. actually just bring them on to the team and they work together to make the stuff work. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it's, it's, it's really cool how they make all that happen with these movies now. Tom Ford's Tom Ford's a good one. Yes. Yummy. <laughs> uh, mm. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Next up in our cast is Olga Kurylenko as Camille, a Ukrainian model. Before this, she was in Hitman and Max Payne. After this, The Assassin Next Door, Centurion, There Be Dragons, Land of Oblivion, To the Wonder, Seven Psychopaths, Magic City, Vampire Academy, The Water Diviner, The Death of Stalin, The Man Who Killed Don Quixote, Oblivion, and Johnny English Strikes Again. Okay. (laughs) So. Not a lot. Mm -mm. Mm -mm. Oh, and that's okay. What do we think of Olga Kurylenko? Hmm. she's very blank yeah but you know what i didn't have a problem with that i didn't feel like she was focus pulling in a way that sometimes i feel like when they're casting the bond girl like like everything with pierce brosnan it was all about stunt casting like we had our Denise Richards, we had our uh, Halle Berry, uh, Michelle Yao. What was it? So much stunt casting, she was phenomenal. But it was just like, oh, it was just something off about it. And and this one felt very even with what was going on with Bond. Yeah, this feels like Goldeneye again. A little bit, yeah. Where we have a supermodel in the cast, mm-hmm. but that supermodel is asked to play down their looks. To a certain extent. And in Goldeneye, that's the really strong case. We have her playing a very just normal kind of frumpy software programmer and only show show that she's a supermodel in one scene of the movie. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So the whole idea is, yes, she is super attractive. There's a reason for that. But she's also a strong, independent woman with agency. And Camille has that in this role. Yeah, Camille's got her own shit going on. Mm-hmm. Yes. In fact, the two share a kiss, but no sex scene. That is a first in this franchise. Nice. Very nice. Kirlenko was really glad for that. She thought it would have distracted from her performance. Good. Nice. They they very intentionally had him in this revenge plot, had a woman at the center of it as part of the formula, Mm -hmm. but then made her story about revenge as well. And their bond is more about revenge Mm-hmm. And getting what they want back. Yeah. And when they share that one tiny romantic moment, both of them come out of that going, No, I don't want to be involved with you. You're right. Fine. Better keep thinking. He's dead. Now what? All the damn we saw will have to come down. And there'll be others too. Someone who worked for Green might be of help. Not a bad idea. Do you think they'll be able to sleep now? I don't think the dead care about vengeance. What I like about that moment is that for Bond, it's just a reflex. That for like, it's literally just like, oh, you're an attractive woman. This is what I do. And then it's just like, oh, this isn't what I want. 
No. This isn't going to fix what's wrong with me. And it's not going to fix what's wrong for her either. Yeah. And she's like, no, this isn't fix my problem either. And I, I like that. It was just like, okay, that happened. Yeah. We're done. They're both okay with that. <laughs> yeah. I, I, I liked that. That's, that's good. Mm-hmm. Kirilenko was chosen out of 400 different women, but per Forster, she seemed like the least nervous of all of them. Oh, nice. She spent three weeks training with weapons, fighting, and body flying. Body flying is, if you've ever seen those indoor parachute places where you put on a jump on a time tunnel, that's body flying. Okay. She genuinely did not enjoy filming any stunts. She Mm. was kind of terrified by it, a little nervous. Daniel Craig gently worked with her to make all of those stunt scenes work. Mm. He was there the entire time to get her to slowly get acclimated and do the stunts with him. She trained with a dialect coach to get the Spanish accent. As Forrester noted, she has a good ear and can imitate people. And now is where we bring up that she is in some deep brown face. She is a Ukrainian model playing a Bolivian character. Oh, no. Yeah. No good. This is a bad. Here's the thing. The producers had always intended to cast a South American actress. Okay. Mm -hmm. And Forster found his actress and went with it. Which, again, I'm fine with. Like, she's a great actress. Change her backstory. Yes. She doesn't have to be from Bolivia. She can be from the Ukraine. She can be from Eastern Europe. That do- It's fine. The bad guy can still be completely the same. And you changing that backstory is absolutely fine. Yeah. Like it doesn't change the weight of the story. Your family could have been in Bolivia for whatever fucking reason you want. That mm-hmm. still makes sense. You can still have her learn that accent so that she's fluent in that language. Whatever. Yeah. There's nothing that says she couldn't have grown up there, but you don't need to paint her. Yeah. mm, In looking at the performance she gave, she does an admirable job of trying to portray Mm -hmm. a Bolivian character. Sure. The problem is, is that when you see her, you realize she is super white and they have completely body tanned her. Yeah. Like they have spray tanned her to heck to make her an ethnicity that she does not share in any form or fashion. Not cool, 2008. Mm. And like pretty early in, I went, oh no. Yeah. <laughs> and we've had, we've had moments like that in this franchise. This one is particularly disappointing because of how, how much they've rethought the franchise, how much they've rethought his ideas of women. Um, he's still a misogynist, but in a much more nuanced and interesting way. And in a way that actually makes us examine that in him. Well, and how completely unnecessary all of those details about her are to the plot. Yeah. How so quickly those could have been fixed. Yeah. It's always the case with this stuff. Like, there was no reason for you to do this shit. No. That's that's no. what's that's what's so beyond disappointing. Who could have been better? First of all, I want to recognize that there were a lot of South American and Latinx actresses that were considered for the role. I'm not naming them because they just aren't people that we would commonly know. Mm -hmm. But if you go to the trivia, there were tons and tons of actresses and television personalities and people in Latin America that were considered. And they should have been passed. 
The names that might be familiar to us are Abby Cornish. No. Carice Van Houten, Melisandre from Game of Thrones. No. Not for this, but damn, she would have been a great Bond girl at some point. She would be a great Bond girl. Juliette Lewis. Fuck no. That chick's a crazy. She's a cray. Misha Barton. No. No, no. And Gal Gadot. Oh, she'd be a good Bond girl too. Yeah. But she's a Wonder Woman, so no. This is before she had really seriously considered acting. She pursued this audition and it motivated her to continue. That's cool. Just the experience of auditioning for this film. All right. On to our villain. We have Matthew Amalric as Dominic Green. Before this, he did a lot of French movies that lots of people probably aren't familiar with, but he was also in Munich, Marie Antoinette, and most famously, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. After this, Still mostly French movies, but he has been in the Grand Budapest Hotel and will be appearing in Wes Anderson's new movie, The French Dispatch. With everybody else in the world. (laughs) I love Wes Anderson. I don't care how problematic he is. Fair. It happens. We all have our problematic things. I know. We have a problematic fave. It happens. What do we think of Matthew Almerich in this movie? I like him. I do. I like him. He's he's evil and and French. Yeah. (laughs) He's just, he's a little bit different from the other villains that we've had in a while. I mean, we've had villains like him before, but, you know, he's maniacal. He's very well, he's definitely thought through the long game of what Mm -hmm. he's doing. Yeah. He's very intelligent. He is ruthless. And and he's, you know, insane. Mm Mm-hmm. He reminds me so much of Largo from Thunderball and Never Say Never Again. Yeah. But taken to a much more sinister and real level. He feels far more true than those two characters ever did, partly because they're playing those as almost cartoon villains. He's very grounded and he he plays it very realistically, which I, I love. And that's what makes him very entertaining. Amorik commented on this. The character has no discernible features to make him formidable. He represents the hidden villains of society. Yes. Uh, Per him, quote, he has no scars, no eye that bleeds, no metal jaw. I tried everything to have something to help me. I said to Mark Forster, no, nothing? A beard? Can I shave my hair? He said, no, just your face. Yeah. Mm. Smartest decision they made in this movie. (laughs) The most evil thing about him is his brain. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah, I love it. I love it. They made the decision that the character would not be able to fight because that way James Bond would be more surprised. Sometimes anger can be much more dangerous. I'm going to fight like in school. And he really enjoyed being in this movie because he had just played a paralyzed newspaper editor in The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. <laughs> so he got to be more physical for once in this role, which he was thoroughly excited about. And that is it for our main cast. We now move on to our pawns, random people of note. Once again, random, because she's not in the movie enough to have her in the main cast yet. Judy Dench as M, but she will be very, very soon. Giancarlo Giannini returning as Renee Mathis. Mm-hmm. We have Gemma Arterton playing Strawberry Fields. <laughs> yes, she is only ever known as Agent Fields in this movie but her full name is Strawberry Fields. She has some interesting stuff noted for her. She found out she got the role simply by her agent singing the James Bond theme to her over the phone. That's funny. 
and cute. Yeah. She won the role over reported 500 other auditions. Damn. Jeez, crazy. They filmed her death scene on the first day of filming, and the media titled that Oil Finger because of the very clear reference to Goldfinger. She is positioned exactly in the same manner that Jill Masterson's body is positioned in Goldfinger. Mm -hmm. It is a very intentional reference. Yeah. And Barbara Broccoli later told her, to her credit, that she lamented the fact that Strawberry Fields was killed off. Aww. That's nice. It's like, oh, you did such a good job. We would, we wish we could have kept you longer. I think that decision may have been part of the rush to like get mm-hmm. the script to come together. Yeah. And because this is a character that they could have kept. Oh, sure. Through other yeah. movie. She could have e- easily had the money penny role. Yeah. 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 With the with being the other agent that he flirts with all the time. Yeah. We get Jeffrey Wright as Felix Slider. Yeah. This is the first time Slider has appeared in consecutive films. His original role was much larger, but got cut down as the rewrites kept going. Buckers. Yeah. Again, he would have made this movie 8,000 times better. And I fully agree. David Harbour as Greg Beam, our smarmy asshole. <laughs> I fucking love David Harbour. It's yes. like a decade before anybody knew who he was. I, I fucking love I him love. so goddamn much when I was rewatching it. I was like, <gasps> oh my God, it's Hopper. Oh my God, it's Hopper. Oh my God. He's on my list. I fucking love him. <laughs> he is such a good bad guy. Mm-hmm. He's not even that much of a bad guy. He's just a douche. Yeah. Yep, he plays a good douche. We have Jesper Christensen returning as Mr. White from Casino Royale. We have Anatole Tobman playing Elvis. He was in Taken and Captain America, the first Avenger. Rory Kinnear makes his first appearance as Bill Tanner in this movie. Mm. Tanner's an ongoing character through the franchise, but Rory Kinnear is going to stay in this with Daniel Craig into perpetuity. In a very brief role at the end of the movie, Stana Cottage, Kate Beckett from Castle... Is Kareen the spy who is pretending to be the new girlfriend of Vesper's old boyfriend? Yep, that is her. Yeah, I knew she was familiar. I couldn't remember why. I couldn't place her. Uh Yep. Yeah. As the receptionist at the Perla de la Dunas Hotel, Una Chaplin, granddaughter of Charlie Chaplin and Talisa Stark on Game of Thrones. Oh, okay. Yeah. As additional background voices, directors Guillermo del Toro and Alfonso Cuaron, they were friends with Forster. Cuaron is the voice of a helicopter pilot, and del Toro does other voices. I think he may be voicing people who are flying the plane oh, cool. in the various fight scenes. That's so those cute. two got a little moment in there. <laughs> That's funny. Michael G. Wilson as man in chair in Haitian hotel lobby. Wilson, one of the main producers of the films and a writer all through the Roger Moore and Timothy Dalton years. And Robert Braithwaite as the speedboat operator. He was the managing director of Sunseeker International Powerboats, the company making all of the boats used in the recent Bond movies. (laughs) And that leads us into our Bond theme. This time, it is Another Way to Die by Jack White and Alicia Keys. This song is great. 
Is it? <laughs> it got a lot of it. I I remember hearing this on the radio and I liked it. I again, it feels like the rest of the movie to me. It just doesn't feel like it quite fits right. It doesn't feel as natural a fit as we got with Chris Cornell. Chris Cornell's is perfect. I know. Like, it is absolutely perfect. This one is just a good song. It it is just a good song. I will yeah. admit that, but I like it. Yeah. Like I said, it, it it felt like their whole rest of this movie. It just doesn't quite fit Bond. It's not that it's bad. It just doesn't quite fit what we're doing here. But I will say the intro sequence is awesome. It is very cool. I forgot that whole thing completely and was like, wow, this is cool. <laughs> This is the first and to date only duet in Bond history. Really? We have only had solo singers do the Bond themes. Interesting. Okay. And who could have been better? Sir Paul McCartney was approached to write another theme. He turned that down and instead recommended Amy Winehouse. Now, Winehouse actually recorded a demo of a song with John Ronson. It was going to happen but the song was never used because this coincided with the worst of her personal struggles and her inability to actually get through a recording session. Oh, wow. So this all happened at the same time and they were like, we, we can't work with her. No, that sucks. Cause I bet that is awesome. Yeah. But that came very close to happening. Amy Winehouse doing a bond theme. Mm-hmm. Man, that would have been cool. All right. Trivia. As we said, with the runtime of one hour and 46 minutes, this is the shortest Bond movie in the Eon official franchise and still is and probably still will be. I don't think they're going to go under two again. No, No Time to Die is now officially the longest one in the franchise. Yeah. At almost three hours. The production designed by Dennis Gastner is intentionally a throwback to Ken Adams' work to the villain's layers of the early 007 movies. This is the first time other than Tomorrow Never Dies that production designer Peter Lamont did not work on the film. But this film marks his retirement from the franchise as a production designer. The finale of the film was filmed in the Atacama Desert, the driest region on Earth, with no measurable rainfall ever occurring there. And Forrester chose this and the hotel to, quote, represent Bond's vengefulness. Question mark? I just want to reiterate again. I can't be in the mountains. (laughs) (laughs) No snow for me? Fine. I'm going to the desert. Yeah. Grumble, grumble, grumble. The free fall scene from the plane was shot in the body flight wind tunnel in Bedford, England. The way they got this shot is fascinating. They used 17 small pinhole digital cameras positioned around the wind tunnel. Mm-hmm. They wanted to shoot it with just large fans in a conventional style. That's how they would normally do a free fall scene like that. But Craig didn't like it. And he and Kurilenko agreed to do it in this wind tunnel so they would actually have the feeling of free falling that they could then map the images around. Okay. Problem with this is that they could only shoot for 30 seconds at a time. Oh, shit. And they had to wear wind-resistant contact lenses so that they could keep their eyes open during the scene. How how would that be? That's dumb. Mm -mm. The visual effects team then had to relight all of the shots that they filmed there to match the sky of where the plane was over the Bolivian desert. 
they could not do any medium or wide shots. So that is why that whole scene is so close up. Mm-mm. Okay. Yeah, thank you. It looks really cool. They yeah. pulled it the fuck off, but that that's a lot of work. Yeah. But the coolest part is that the cameras all synced together. Mm-hmm. So instead of it being 17 separate cameras, it worked as one continuous camera that shot the actors. And then they were able to take that data from the cameras and process it with the environment. Oh, that is cool. So they actually linked everything together, converted it into data, and then mapped the environment around the actors, which I think is why it actually looks real when you watch it versus it looking so fakey and CGI. Mm-hmm. They did a very good job of touching it up. That's cool. <laughs> the opening car chase took months of preparation and eight weeks to film on location in Italy. Fuck. <laughs> they used 40 different stuntmen, six doubles for Daniel Craig, 760,000 pound Aston Martin DBSs. That's how much they cost. And eight Alfa Romeo 159s. That was a massive undertaking. <laughs> This is the only Bond film to feature a foot chase, car chase, plane chase, and boat chase in the same film. That's awesome. The movie used 200,000 rounds of blanks for training, testing, and filming. The floating opera sequence. (laughs) It used 1,700 extras. They were all paid 42 pounds a day for three days of work. CGI then amplified that audience to 7,000, but the opera is Puccini's Tosca and Forster edited it to resemble the Hitchcock film, The Man Who Knew Too Much. This was an actual opera production that was fully filmed and can be viewed. It was filmed in 2007 and the stage is an actual floating stage built on part of a barge in Lake Constance in Bregenz, Austria. So this is an actual place you could go see an opera. But the whole thing is filmed as a parallel to the plot. The opera thought contains a bunch of similar revenge themes that they were mirroring as James goes after these guys at the opera. At the time, there were a ton of rumors that Al Pacino was going to make a cameo in this film, possibly at the end as a Blofeld-style leader of Quantum. Mm. In truth, Pacino was actually interested in the role of General Medrano. <laughs> What are our ratings for this movie? We need a rating system. All of our movies have a singular rating system for this one. Drunk Bonds. How many Drunk Bonds do we give this film? How many Drunk Bonds? Mm-hmm. Diana, I will let you go first for this film. Uh, I'm going to go with a two and a half. The script is a problem just because they rushed it. They really rushed it. And then they hired the wrong director for this film. And and then they made some problematic decisions. I think they hired a really good actress, but then they didn't adjust accordingly. And they, made, and they made they made problematic decisions based on that. Yeah. So uh two and a half. Like I still enjoy like watching the film and I really like the direction that they took with Bond, but it's not great. I was thinking higher, but based on what you said, same, two and a half. The more we talk about it, the more that it is a solid movie, but so many of its disparate parts don't come together at all. And so while it's kind of enjoyable to watch, there's a lot going on that Mm -hmm. could have been so much better if we had somebody 
with a firm hand on the wheel. Yeah. Well, they just slowed down and like yeah. waited. Kate, how many drunken bonds would you give this film? I have to agree with you guys, two and a half, but I have to say my opinion of it goes up given the context that you guys have given me. If you had asked me earlier, I would have given it less based on my personal viewing of it. But that's that's coming to it having less information because like it's been years since I've seen Casino Royale. So like yeah. You know, coming to it, not having that same amount of background, not having all of that information. I'm a person who appreciates having more information, <laughs> you know? Okay, so we improved the movie for you. You improved it for me. Great. But that said, it's still tremendously problematic. Fair. Total, <laughs> totally fair. Like, yeah, they 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 needed to fix some things. Yeah, there, there was a lot of room for improvement. But, you know, there there were parts of it that are, you know, genuinely... Daniel Craig in a Speedo. Sure. I don't have a problem with that. On an incredibly sexy suit. Many. Like, I'm many. sorry, but many. just that shot when he walks into that hotel room. I can't find the, um, the stationery. You come and help me look. And he's just kind of standing there. It's just like, <laughs> that's hot. Like, they mm-hmm. picked this room just for how you look in it. And I am here for this. <laughs> like, this is a good shot. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I'm here for this. Yes. That brings us to the end of this film. Kate, if people wanted more of the wonderfulness of Kate on the interwebs, where would they find you? If they are looking to find more of my wonderful voice or more of my shenanigans, I am part of an actual play podcast called The Space Agers. You can find us on Twitter at the underscore space underscore agers. And if you want to find me personally, I update with whatever other projects I'm working on. You can find me at Argon, A-R-G-O-N, Kitten, K-I-T-T-E-N. You can find me on that on just about any of the social media sites, Twitter, Instagram, etc. And uh, I'm, I'm always around. If you want me to come guest on your show, I'd be happy and delighted to do so as well. I'm always around and I'm always happy to play. Hey. Do it. Yes. Kate's the best. Yep. Next week is Skyfall. Oh, fuck. <laughs> We're about to have another intense, heavy episode of stuff to talk about. All, all of these have been intense and heavy. <laughs> all right. Well, until next time. Bye, everybody. Bye. Bye, friends. Thanks for listening. Be sure to review and rate us on iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you listen to your podcast. For questions, comments, and recommendations, you can email us at macintoshandmod at gmail.com or find us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. (laughs) 